Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's text is the speech, The Fundamental Principle of a Republic by Anna Howard Shaw, given in New York in 1915. Shaw argues that the fundamental principle of a republic is that its citizens get to participate in civic life, and that in denying women the right to vote, America falls short of its own democratic values. As listeners might recall from our episode on the Seneca Falls Convention, the women's suffrage movement had officially begun in 1848, which means that at the point that this speech was given, women had been fighting for the right to vote for 67 years. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? Why was it taking so long? What arguments were being made against women's suffrage that were convincing American men and American women that women should not have the right to vote? Anna Howard Shaw's oration addresses exactly those anti-suffrage arguments. This speech is included on many lists of the 50 best speeches of the entire 20th century. And sure enough, when I read it, I was blown away, not only by its power, but also by its humor. Anna Howard Shaw was funny. Um, But before we get to the speech, I want to introduce my reading partner, Amy Osmond Cook. Uh, Amy and I were neighbors and running buddies several years ago in Southern California, And we crammed years worth of deep discussion into the year that we lived in the same neighborhood. Um, Also, fun fact, as you may have guessed from her maiden name, Amy is the niece of Donnie and Marie Osmond. She's way too humble to name drop like that. So I'm going to do it for her and out her right in her intro. Um, One other fun thing is that Amy and I discovered after meeting each other that we know tons of the same people. We have lots of friends in common. And after we had been friends for months, we actually discovered that my first cousin is married to Amy's sister, which was hilarious. I have like 30 first cousins. And so that's why kind of that fell through the cracks and we didn't know. But Amy, I absolutely just adored you from the first moment I met you. And I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this project with me. So thank you so much for being here. Amy, the feeling is just so mutual. You know, when you first meet somebody on a rare occasion, you just know that you're going to be lifelong friends with that person. And that's how I felt when I met you. And it is just such a pleasure to be able to get reconnected over time and space and be able to talk about things that are really important to both of us. So again, thank you again for having me. Thanks, same. Well, before we start, um, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, just things like where you grew up and what makes you the person you are today. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, So um, depending on how far back we go, my heritage is uh, from Europe. Um, We have a lot of Swedish and Welsh and English. Can I come from the English tradition? Uh, there, I'm rumored to have a great great grandma that is a Native American, but that is not 100% confirmed. Um, we also have a uh, an ancestor that was a Moroccan pirate, and Whoa. I know, crazy. <laughs> and and uh, Lord Nelson is our probably our most famous ancestor. Um, he was a, a very famous military commander. So yeah, how interesting. Yeah. So we had a a lot of, um, we've had a lot of fun, colorful personalities in our heritage. Um, I was born and raised in Provo, Utah, 
My dad is an entertainer, um, one of the original four Osmond brothers, and my mom was an opera singer. And so they they met in church. They loved to sing together, and um, you know had a had a lot of fun uh, down at BYU. Uh, my parents are both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, um, and I was raised Mormon as well. And I'm an active Mormon today. Um, I went to BYU for um, bachelor's and master's degree, and then the University of Utah for my PhD. Um, in organizational rhetoric. So um, my career is uh, has been so interesting and different from what I imagined. Um, but today I work as um, the chief marketing officer for Simplis, which is a subsidiary of Infosys, a global technology conglomerate based in India. And uh, I also run an agency on the side, which is so much fun. And I teach a class at BYU Hawaii. And my husband, Jeff, and I have five kids and live in Southern California. So that's kind of a mouthful, but that's a little bit about me. It's awesome. You have the ability to do more, <laughs> I think, than almost <laughs> anyone else I have ever met in my life. You have so many pots on the stove all the time and yet you manage everything with like such grace and cheerfulness and you have time for other people. I one thing that's so neat about you Amy that I'm just remembering as we're talking is you do always have so much going on at such a high level of accomplishment but I always felt like you were like really listening to me and so present. So you know how sometimes you'll talk to people and you're like, it's okay, but you're very scattered. <laughs> like, you well, don't seem- Thank you for saying that because sometimes I do feel scattered and I'm really happy that, you know, everything you, I was always very interested in everything you had to say, Amy. <laughs> and, you know, no one can do it all, but I really appreciate that. And I feel very lucky and blessed to have a, a full life and be able to you know, show my four daughters that that they too can have the life that they always wanted. So I'm uh, grateful for that chance. And you're an amazing example to them and to me and to everybody around you. So um, if you if we could take just one more second, I'm curious about what brought you to the project. I mean, I guess I invited you to the project, but why did you agree to do this project with me? What does breaking down patriarchy mean to you, I guess? Well, for me, I feel like, I think you said it all in the very beginning. Why in the world did it take 67 years from the beginning? I mean, it, and took even longer, but from the, from the time that women wanted the right to vote formally, 67 years later, you know, we're still, they were still fighting for it. And I find that um, progress with women's rights continues to be equally slow. And it's something that should be important to all of us. And we have so much great traction um, in our society today. There's never been a better time to be a woman, to have a career, to have rights, to have, um, you know, all, all of the, the blessings that, that come with that. And then in some other areas, there's never been a worse time. And a lot of that depends on where you live, who your family is, uh, what your belief system is. And so there, there's a great inequity right now. And 
I would love to somehow be able to empower women to be able to, to live the lives that they really want. That was really insightful. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for that answer. Um, and I agree. Uh, I think it's so important to, to hold both at the same time gratitude for how much better things are than they used to be, and also a determination to, to keep the ball rolling and to keep making things better for ourselves and then for everyone around us. And um, thanks for that, Amy. Um, okay, well, let's dive in to kind of Anna Howard Shaw's context. Um, to start, in preparation for discussing the text, we're going to set the stage by explaining the women's suffrage movement and Anna Howard Shaw. So we're just going to take turns. Um, and as a way of orienting us, we're going to share some highlights that we got from the women's suffrage timeline as found on the website of the National Women's History Museum. So we'll just take turns reading some important dates so we have an understanding of what happened when. So I'll start um, in 1850 in Worcester, Massachusetts. It's the site That was the site of the first National Women's Rights Convention. Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, Lucy Stone, and Sojourner Truth were all in attendance, among many other people. Um, there was a strong alliance between the women's rights movement and the abolitionist movement. And actually, as we've learned in other episodes, those two movements were allies from the very beginning. And in fact, the women's movement grew directly out of the abolitionist movement. Um, jumping ahead a decade or so to 1861, um, of course, that's the beginning of the Civil War. And during the Civil War, efforts for the suffrage movement came to a halt. Women were mostly putting their energies toward the war effort, understandably. Um, in 1866, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony formed the, e the American Equal Rights Association, which was an organization dedicated to the goal of suffrage for all, regardless of gender or race. 1868, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Parker Pillsbury published the first edition of the periodical The Revolution. And this periodical carried the motto, quote, men, their rights, and nothing more. Women, their rights, and nothing less, end quote. Um, and then this that year, 1868, was also significant because Senator S.C. Pomeroy of Kansas introduced the federal women's suffrage amendment in Congress, and it was rejected. Interesting. Um, in 1869, the American Equal Rights Association is wrecked by disagreements over the question of whether to support the proposed 15th Amendment, which would enfranchise Black American males while avoiding the question of women's suffrage entirely. Also in 1869, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, a more radical institution, to achieve the vote through a constitutional amendment as well as push for other women's rights. In 1870, the 15th Amendment gives Black men the right to vote. NWSA refused to work for its ratification, and instead, the members advocate for a 16th Amendment that would dictate universal suffrage. Frederick Douglass broke with Stanton and Anthony over the position of NWSA. Yeah, and that's understandable. We talked about... Um... We talked about this a little bit on the previous episode where uh, the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, um, 
This was just such a tragic episode in history. Frederick Douglass had worked so hard helping white women achieve equal rights. Um, And like we just read, initially, they were campaigning for universal suffrage. So suffrage for all, regardless of gender or race. But they abandoned the cause of equal rights for African-Americans. And at that point, Stanton, who had started her career as an abolitionist, she said some terribly racist things. Once it became apparent that black men were going to get the right to vote before white women, it got really ugly, really terrible. And, and a very strong allyship and friendship was broken by these white women. Um, so again, just such a tragic chapter in the story. So it's understandable that Frederick Douglass broke with these women at that point. It, it was just so painful. That it does that does sound so painful after working so hard to try to achieve that for a group to be turned on like that. It's really unfortunate. Well, in 1872, Susan B. Anthony casts her ballot for Ulysses S. Grant in the presidential election and is arrested and brought to trial in Rochester, New York. Fifteen other women are arrested for illegally voting. Sojourner Truth appears at a polling booth in Battle Creek, Michigan, demanding a ballot to vote, and she's turned away. In 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union is founded by Annie Wittenmeyer. Um, Temperance, of course, means not consuming alcohol. And the WCTU became an important proponent in the fight for women's suffrage. As a result, one of the strongest opponents to women's enfranchisement was the liquor lobby, which feared women might use their vote to prohibit the sale of liquor. So even then, it's kind of interesting. You know, one of the themes that I really want to talk about today is how fear is such a motivator throughout um, the women's rights movement and continues to be today. I think that many times women really underestimate the power that they have and that others see in them as well. Uh, in 1878, a women's suffrage amendment is proposed in the U.S. Congress. When the 19th Amendment passes 41 years later, it is worded exactly the same as this 1878 amendment. Okay, 1890. Two different women's suffrage organizations merge to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton is the first president. The movement focuses efforts on securing suffrage at the state level, since it just would not pass at the national level. They were trying, and they just couldn't get it to pass, so they just decided to focus on one state at a time. And in 1890, Wyoming is admitted to the union with a state constitution granting women suffrage. So that's really exciting. Um, It kind of makes sense to me because out in the frontier, right, those Western women were working right alongside the men, taking care of animals and fields and doing a lot of the same hard work that the men were doing in a much more egalitarian way, right? So these women were not the ones who were sitting in a parlor you know, confined in a gilded cage doing embroidery, right? These, um, it just kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. But in the West, they just have a different ethos and a different um, lifestyle, really. Um, Okay. 1894, 600,000 signatures are presented to the New York State Constitutional Convention in an effort to bring a woman's suffrage amendment to the voters. It is rejected. And if you read um, like a not a transcript, but like a record of what happened in the Constitutional Convention, the men laughed at it. It's like so insulting. That is Um, so insulting. (laughs) 
after 600,000, I mean, and think of how much of the population that is back then, you know. True. That's mm-hmm. such a good point. Okay, moving on. 1896. Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Francis E. W. Harper, among others, found the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. Um, so that's really significant. And I, uh, I really encourage listeners to look up, especially Ida B. Wells, just such an amazing human being, such an amazing woman, and so important in the women's suffrage movement. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second as well. Okay, also in 1896, Utah joins the union with full suffrage for women. Um, interestingly, it doesn't say this on the timeline, but the voting rights of Utah women were later revoked because of an issue with polygamy. And that's an interesting story to look up. And you no doubt know all about that, Amy, right? Because you wrote a lot about polygamy in your PhD dissertation, as I recall. That's right. My, my PhD dissertation was about a fringe movement. Um, it was a break off of the Mormon church and uh, really, really interesting, but it gets into a lot of, because it was a sect that was, trying to go back to the the fundamental belief system. Um, there was a lot of uh, history that was involved in that dissertation. And it is a very interesting and complicated story, really two-sided. Um, and that is another story we can get into another time. Yeah. <laughs> but, a, but a very interesting issue. Yep. Yep. Okay. So I'll, we'll just leave it at that and just say, if you're interested in that, maybe I'll put a... Um, a link to some articles in the show notes so that you can look it up, listeners, if if you're yeah in, curious about that. Okay, also in 1896, Idaho adopts women's suffrage. Again, all these Western states. As a Western girl, that's kind of like gratifying. <laughs> that's yeah, pretty- it makes me feel pretty good that you know that people, and we'll get into this more in the um, in the fundamental principles speech, but. She says in there that we know that men are are that American men are kind of a decent, good sort of fellow, and so not not saying that you know they aren't uh, you know maybe maybe a little bit um, discriminatory, but when you get to know when the men and women get to know each other, that's when that's when they start treating each other well, when they start working side by side, and that's that's kind of an interesting theme you see throughout. That's true. And su- uh, such a great point and a point that I can really get behind. I love it. Um, okay. 1903, the Women's Trade Union League of New York is founded, an organization of middle and working class women dedicated to unionization for working women and to women's suffrage. 1910, Washington State adopts women's suffrage. And also in 1910, the Women's Political Union organizes the first suffrage parade in New York City. So they're still really working on New York. 1911, the National Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage is organized. Led by Mrs. Arthur Dodge, its members included wealthy, influential women, some Catholic clergymen, distillers and brewers, urban political machines, Southern congressmen, and some heads of large corporations. 1912, women's suffrage is supported for the first time at the national level by a major political party, Theodore Roosevelt's Bull Moose Party. 20,000 suffrage supporters join a New York City suffrage parade in 1912. Oregon, Kansas, and Arizona adopt women's suffrage. In 1913, suffragists organize a parade down in Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., 
The parade was the first major suffrage spectacle organized by the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Um, and something that doesn't appear on the timeline that we want to just call out is in a New York Times article called How the Suffrage Movement Betrayed Black Women, author Brent Staples writes that the white leaders of this parade, quote, demanded that black participants march in an all-black assembly at the back of the parade instead of with their state delegations. Ida B. Wells famously refused. Mary Church Terrell, who marched in a colored delegation as requested, believed at the time that white suffrages would exclude black women from the 19th Amendment, nicknamed the Anthony Amendment, if they thought they could get away with it. And these episodes fueled within the African-American community a lasting suspicion of white suffragists and the very idea of political cooperation across racial lines, which is so unfortunate because, you know, really they could have been such stronger allies to each other. Um, the story is not covered often enough. And um, really, if uh, to all of our listeners, we encourage you to look up Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell. Uh, we've also posted a link to biographies of Black women who work tirelessly for women's suffrage on the website, breakingdownpatriarchy.com. Yeah, it's just shameful. I feel it just devastates me to read that that happened. I just cannot even imagine how that would have felt to be told to march in a separate um, area at the back of the parade. I just, it just makes me want to cry. It's, yeah, it's really, it's really sad to think because just as they, you know, you would think that there would be a little bit more compassion for that because they are an excluded group themselves. So, I mean, what I think that, you know, for me, what that tells me is to check my biases at the door. And if I'm feeling excluded, look around for others who may feel the same way. 1915, 40,000 march in a New York City suffrage parade. Many women are dressed in white and carry placards with the names of the states they represent. Um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts continue to reject women's suffrage. It's so interesting, Amy, to just lay it out like verbally, say the whole thing like that, and to realize that's just so interesting. Like if you put it on a map, and just see that it really was those like um, the right along the East Coast, those traditional old school Eastern states that were just holding out. And I, I, I it makes me want to study it more to, you know, kind of understand the social factors that were at play, whether it was just kind of a traditionalist attitude. Um, that's so it, it, and it's because it's counter to what happens now where you think of like the coastal areas being more liberal, right? And more progressive and inclusive. So um, anyway, this all leads up to the moment of our, or Anna Howard Shaw's speech in New York in 1915. So um, as we just pointed out, suffrage was being battled state by state and New York was still holding out against it. So now as our last step before we get to the speech, we're going to learn just a little bit about Anna Howard Shaw and who she was. So Amy, could you give us just a brief biography? Absolutely. Um, Anna Howard Shaw was born on Valentine's Day, 1847. And any 30 Rock fans, uh, Amy, I know you are a fan. Um, totally. <laughs> Liz Lemon renames Valentine's Day Anna Howard Shaw Day. And I will always think of Valentine's Day in the future as Anna Howard Shaw Day. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Shaw was born in England. She moved with her parents to the United States when she was four years old. 
She grew up in a forest in Michigan, helping her mother manage a large property and many children in the wilderness while her father worked in the city and had a thriving career. So Anna did a lot of manual labor, caretaking of her mother and younger siblings when she was a child. So Shaw, she felt called to preach from an early age. Um, As a child, she would spend time in the woods near her house and stand on the tree stumps to preach to the trees of the forest. She was determined to go to college, follow the path that she felt was God's will for her life. And her family was not supportive of that, refused to help her with her goal. So she took up on her own and she had to, quote unquote, pick up the dreaded needle and do work as a seamstress because her preferred work of digging ditches or shoveling coal was not considered suitable for women. So an important moment in her life came when Anna met Reverend Mariana Thompson, a Universalist minister who came to preach in Grand Rapids. She went to the service, eager to see a woman at the pulpit, and after the service, Shaw confided in Thompson her own desire to pursue the ministry as a vocation. So Thompson strongly encouraged her to obtain an education without delay. In 1873, Shaw entered Albion College, a Methodist school in Albion, Michigan. Since her family frowned upon her um, and decided that they did not like her career path, they wouldn't provide any financial support for her. So at this point, she had been a licensed preacher for three years, and she earned her wages by giving lectures on temperance. After Albion College, Shaw attended Boston School of Theology in 1876. She was the only woman in her class of 42 men, and she always felt the, quote, abysmal conviction that she was not really wanted there. She also struggled to support herself financially, so she was already on a tight income, and she found it so unfair, and I find it so unfair, that the male licensed preachers were given free accommodations in the dormitory, and their board cost them $1.25. It cost her two bucks to pay a rent out pay rent of a room outside. So she also had trouble finding work in 1880 after she and Annie Oliver were refused ordination by the Methodist Episcopal Church. Despite passing with top exam score, she achieved ordination in the Methodist Protestant Church. So following her ordination, she received an MD from Boston University Um, So she became a doctor. She's like, fine, you're not going (laughs) to, I'm going to break down all the barriers in my lifetime, not just one or two. I love it. I love it. During her time in medical school, she became an outspoken advocate of political rights for women. So um, Shaw first met Susan B. Anthony in 1887. And in 1888, she attended the first meeting of the International Council of Women. Susan B. Anthony encouraged her to join the National Women's Suffrage Association and in 1904 became president of the organization. She was president for the next 11 years. And during the 20th century, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, NAWSA members, began employing militant techniques like picketing the White House during World War I to fight for women's suffrage. They, like other members, were inspired by the success of the militant suffragettes in England. She was ardently nonviolent and maintained that she was, quote, unalterably opposed to militancy, believing nothing of permanent value has ever been secured by it that could not have been more easily obtained by peaceful methods, unquote. She's so ahead of her time and so amazing. She was a speaker at the 1919 National Convention on Lynching, speaking about her frustration that women could not vote to outlaw the practice of lynching. 
In July of 1919, Shaw died of pneumonia at her home in Moylan, Pennsylvania, at the age of 72, only a few months before Congress ratified the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, granting women the right to vote. Oh, doesn't it just kill you? I wish you just- <laughs> killed me. It kills me, but I have to think that God's on the other side, letting her have a front row seat. Yes, there we go. <laughs> That's how we frame it. That's I correct. Love it. I love it. Or maybe she had more power on the other side, like Obi Wan Kenobi, and she was the one who helped it get passed maybe because so. <laughs> she maybe was. So. More- <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, in large part due to her efforts, women now have yes. the right to vote and. So grateful to her for that. Yes, so grateful. Well, thank you, Amy, for acquainting us with this amazing woman whom I had never studied before. I only, I am embarrassed to admit, my reference for Anna Howard Shaw was 30 Rock. That's like, there's <laughs> there's a gif that I send to my daughters and some of my friends on how, on Valentine's Day that where Liz Lemon says, happy Anna Sh- Howard Shaw Day. And that's all I knew about Anna Howard Shaw. So, so grateful to have another heroine in my life. Um, such an amazing Absolutely. I feel the same way. She's, she, I did not I'd never read her speech before either so it was really um it was amazing funny hilarious I laughed I cried and at the same time I was like how have I never read this before so it was a definitely overdue yep well that's the theme of the podcast that's how I felt in every single text how have I never read this before so um Well, awesome. Now, finally, we will get to the text. Um, I really encourage listeners to read it if you haven't already. Um, It was hard to narrow down what we would highlight today because there's so much amazing material, really moving parts of the speech. Like Amy said, I also laughed and cried as I read it. Um, And it's just really readable and enjoyable for a speech of the time. Sometimes, you know, a, a speech from 1915 might not be as easy to read. And I just found it a delight to read. Mm hmm. Um, I'm going to start out with um, the very first thing that Anna Howard Shaw says. She says, quote, when I came into your hall tonight, I thought of the last time I was in your city. 21 years ago, I came here with Susan B. Anthony, and we came for for exactly the same purpose as that for which we are here tonight, end quote. And again, I just want to pause there and say just how easy it is for us to look back because we know how the story ends and you know you just want to say like don't worry it's going to work out you're doing the right thing keep going but I I just think it's hard to imagine how it would feel to spend your entire life fighting for something day after day all day long and you know knowing that the generation before you even had fought for it and nothing and nothing was changing everything was in the exact same place here I am 21 years later on the exact same topic and nothing's changed and it would be hard to not give up. So I, I just commend her for her, um, just her determination and resilience to keep going. Absolutely. Um, The next thing she says that quote, boys have been born since that time and have become voters. And the women are still trying to persuade American men to believe in the fundamental principles of democracy And I never quite feel as if it was a fair field to argue this question with men. Um, 
that's where I'm going to end that quote as she goes on. But um, I just wanted to pause and say it's not. It's not a fair field. It's a really important point that she makes. And we've discussed this on multiple episodes already, but I want to bring it up again. It feels a little bit like that, you know, that part of the Bible where Queen Esther is fasting and praying and she goes into King Xerxes just hoping that he feels benevolent enough to raise his scepter and let her talk and not execute her. And I just, it's just such um, a humiliating position to be in, to kind of have to grovel and go in and say like, please don't kill me, please listen to me. And it's just not a fair power dynamic. And it gives me sympathy for people of color trying to argue for their rights when they're talking to the people in power and they're all all white, right? And and for LGBTQ plus people trying to convince straight people to please let them have the same civil rights that straight people already enjoy. Um, that's an important one to me too, that, that I just, it gives me sympathy for like how that would feel if, if you're just trying to appeal to a panel of people who can't relate to you and they, and they have all the power. It's just not a fair field of argument. It is um, it's interesting to you you know, reflect back on some of the things that happened this past year in 2020. And that is one of the, the resounding messages that the, um, the black community as well as the LGBTQ community have said is that it's just not a fair fight. True. Aim. I love how you said it earlier too, where you said, you know, to look around us, right. I mean, to make sure that if, if we, if we have observed that in history, like there's a door that has closed on us, or if it's it's closed to us now, to make sure that if we get to walk through a door that we look behind us, we look around us and say, uh-oh, did that door just close behind me and leave somebody else out? Um, so we need to always be asking ourselves that question. Um, okay, back to the speech. Uh, the next thing that she says, quote, If we trace our history back, we will find that from the very dawn of our existence as a people, men have been imbued with a spirit and a vision more lofty than they have been able to live. (laughs) They have been led by visions of the sublimest truth, both in regard to religion and in regard to government, that ever inspired the souls of men. End quote. Um, I love that she's able to see the founding of the nation with nuance and complexity, um, that the principles upon which the nation was founded were groundbreaking and um, really progressive in comparison to the feudalism and the aristocracy and the religious persecution of Europe. So I think what she's saying is like, this is a, it really is a step in a good direction. But even from the very beginning, the founders had really egregious blind spots. And those blind spots continued to cause immense suffering for other people. And they didn't live up to their own stated ideals. But I I really appreciate that she can see all of the different complex components of the founding of the country. I thought that was interesting. And again, like you pointed out, ahead of her time, I mm-hmm. think, in the way she saw it. Totally agree. And it is also pretty interesting. This, you know, her saying, oh, you know, these, these amazing groundbreaking ideals are, you know, she, she lauds them, praises them. And then in the very next section, uh, uses it to com- you know, to showcase the inequities, which I think drives the point home even more. So she says here, 
Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And the voice of the people is the voice of God. And the orator forgets that in the people's voice, there is a soprano as well as a bass. If the voice of the people is the voice of God, how are we ever going to know what God's voice is when we're content to listen to a bass solo? (laughs) (laughs) So well said. Now, if it is true that the voice of the people is the voice of God, we will never know what the deity's voice in government is until the bass and soprano are mingled together, the result of which will be the divine harmony. Take any of the magnificent appeals for freedom which men make, rob them of their universal application, and you take the very life and soul out of them. So as a musician myself, I love that analogy of a choir singing, and I think it's just absolutely true. It's it's It rings hollow and rings untrue when um, a universal ideal is not applied universally. So there's an, another quote from the section where it says, we have our theory, our beliefs, but as suffrages, we have but one belief, one principle, one theory, and that is the right of a human being to have a voice in the government under which he or she lives. Whenever any question is to be settled in any community, then the people of that community shall settle that question. The women, people, equally with the men, people, that is all there is to it. (laughs) I love she just oh man she just cuts through it like a knife she's like really Uh what's the fundamental truth that's all there is to it so anyway it's very very well said and very interesting um I agree on that name oh well I mean yeah, I I just think she's so funny. The the women people equally with the men people, and you can tell she's saying that like to be funny, and just kind of that um, casualness of her speech. Again, I'm like, whoa! When was this? When was this given? It just kept surprising me. I I loved it. Okay, the next part of the speech that we want to highlight, and this is the part that we'll kind of spend the most time on because it's really the meat of the speech, um, are the arguments that people were making against women's right to vote. That was just so interesting to me. Um, And here's what Anna Howard Shaw says, quote, when it comes to arguing their case, they bring up all sorts of arguments. And the beauty of it is they always answer all their own arguments. They never make an argument, but they answer it. When I was asked to answer one of their debates, I said, what's the use? Divide up their literature and let them destroy themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She's so funny. Okay, so then she gives some examples of how they are actually arguing opposite things. So she's undermining, she's using this, you know, rhetorical device. She's, she's um, pointing out how they are, are arguing things that are incompatible with each other. Right. So here's the first example. She says, quote, I was followed up last year by a young married woman from New Jersey. She left her husband home for three months to tell women that their place was at home and that they could not leave home long enough to go to the ballot box. I loved that one. That one was one of my favorites. <laughs> I loved it too. The irony, like you have to be paying attention or the irony will just get past you, but so funny. Um, and then she continues with this woman who's who's sincerely arguing against women's suffrage. Um, Shaw quotes this woman. She says, well, she doesn't really quote her. Shaw describes it this way. Quote, she started by proving that it was no use to give the women the ballot because if they did have it, they would not use it. And she had statistics to prove it. 
If we would not use it, then I really cannot see the harm of giving it to us. We would not hurt anybody with it, and what an easy way for you men to get rid of us. No more suffrage meetings, never any nagging you again. No one could blame you for anything that went wrong with the town. If it did not run right, all you'd have to say is, you have the power, why don't you go ahead and clean it up? Then the young lady, unfortunately for her first argument, proved by statistics, of which she had many, the awful results which happened where women did have the ballot. What? awful laws have been brought about by women's vote, the conditions that prevail in the homes and how deeply women get interested in politics because women are hysterical and we cannot think of anything else. We just forget our families, cease to care for our children, cease to love our husbands, and just go to the polls and vote and keep on voting for 10 hours a day, 365 days in the year. If we ever get to the polls once, you will never get us home and they will not do anything but vote. Now, these are, very, these are two very strong anti-suffrage arguments, and they can prove them by figures. And that's the end of the quote. It's a long one, but I just think it is so hilarious. Yeah, it so, just showed the absurdity of the whole thing, and she just nailed it. Yep. We're going to just go to the polls and not stop voting, vote 365 days a year, all the time. It was, it was pretty amazing. Yep. So um, here's another set of arguments, and she kind of uses the same device. Then they will tell you that if women are permitted to vote, it will be a great expense and no use because wives will vote just as their husbands do. Even if we have no husbands, that would not affect the result because we would vote just as our husbands would vote if we had one. How I wish the anti-suffragists could make men believe that. If they could make men believe that, the women would vote just as they wanted them to do. Um, you think we would ever have to make another speech or hold another meeting? We would have the vote whether we wanted to or not. And then, <laughs> and then the very one who will tell you that the women will vote just as their husbands do will tell you in five minutes that they will not vote as their husbands will. And then the discord in the homes and the divorce. Why they have discovered that in Colorado there are more divorces than there were before women began to vote. But they've forgotten to tell you that there are four times as many people in Colorado today as there were when women began to vote. <laughs> it was pretty fantastic. And she just, you know, really like nails the whole, you know, really undercuts all of those arguments really, really easily. And she does it with humor in a way that really show, showcases how absurd it all is. Yeah, it really was. And one of one of the things that I thought of as we as I was reading these contradicting arguments, it reminds me of an epiphany that I had a few years ago when I was thinking about how within Christianity, the ancient church fathers used to argue that men needed to be in charge of women because as the daughters of Eve, women were so spiritually weak and so prone to sin, and so they were incapable of leading, and that's why men needed to be in charge of women. Yet then in more recent centuries, the argument shifted to the the exact opposite, where men argue that men need to be in charge of women because women were spiritually superior and so angelic, and they were so capable of leading that if women had a chance to lead, then they would just take over everything and then men would be obsolete. So it just I, I just think this is kind of an old thing. All through the ages, men have argued that they needed to be in charge, and they just use whatever argument they need <laughs> to make that point. Um, and then, of course, women who choose to align themselves with the people in power 
um, and support the existing system argue against women's autonomy as well. So, yeah. And I think it, I think what you said is really, um, really showcases the point that this was never about logic. Like she was <laughs> done the logic in, you know, two seconds flat. This was about fear in my opinion and what, what could happen to society and what like, uh, and I think, you know, uh, humanity has a, has a fear of not being in control. And, and, um, that's, uh, maybe something that, that could have been, um, played, playing a part, but that's a, that's another topic we can get into a little later, but the, here's another interesting part of the story. Um, a gentleman told me a story in California. This is Shaw speaking. And when he was talking, I had a wonderful thing pass through my mind. He said that he and his wife had lived together for 20 years and never had a difference of opinion in the whole 20 years. And he was afraid if women began to vote, that his wife would vote differently from him. And then the beautiful harmony which they had had for 20 years would be broken. And all the time he was talking, I could not help wondering which was the idiot. Because I knew that no intelligent human being could live together for 20 years and not have a difference of opinion. All the time he was talking, I looked at this splendid type of manhood and thought, how would a man feel being tagged up by a little woman for 20 years saying, me too, me too. I would not want to live in a house with a human being for 20 years who agreed with everything I said. The stagnation of a frog pond would be hilarious compared to that. <laughs> it was, I'm like, you know, that is a really good point. And it's funny because even now I actually had a friend say that to me the other day where she said, you know, I'm a little bit afraid of pursuing my higher educational goals. Right now, things are, are really like even killed with my husband. We're in a really good, you know, situation. I'm afraid of rocking the boat. And I think that's a real fear of people. And so I can see why that might, you know, be, I am, I admire the man's honesty that it was based on his fear rather than like any good reason, you know? Mm. Yeah. That's a great perspective. Mm. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Um, one thing I thought that I'll say really quickly is just that, um, again, historically speaking, like the historical context of the time was that the laws of coverture were just barely starting to be overturned and outdated and societal change is really gradual. And so, um, under the laws of coverture, of course, the husband and wife were, were thought of as being one person. And so, I mean, I guess that's where his expectation would come from, that there really should not be ever any difference of opinion, because under the laws of coverture, women didn't exist as separate entities. And I just read in a different reading this week that there was a minister in the 19th century said at the time, in marriage, man and woman become one, and that one is the man. And so it's one thing to have like both partners be like, oh, we always need to be in sync with each other. And we always need to have like the same opinion, which isn't healthy anyway. But but it's it would be disingenuous to say like, oh, we always need to have harmony, um, but not admit that what that meant was the man could have whatever opinion and do whatever he wanted to do. And the woman just needed to get in line with that opinion right? It's not, it's not consensus. That's not what they're going for. It's just the woman, like you read, Amy, like, me too, me too. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just agree with everything you say. I have to, in order to have harmony, I have to always be the one to change. Anyway. Yeah, that's right. So um, there's another passage in here that I think is very interesting. And 
I think really captures how she feels about men in her time. Okay, here it is. Now, it may be that the kind of men that the anti-suffragists live with is that kind, the kind that can't tolerate differences of opinion. But they are not the kind we live with, and we could not do it. Great big overgrown babies cannot be disputed without having a row. While we do not believe that men are saints by any means, we do believe that the average American man is a fairly good sort of fellow. And I think that that is really awesome that she basically, she just knocks those guys down a notch and was like, you guys quit being babies. You're decent people. Just quit, you know, quit getting your undies in a bunch and just come to the table and be, be normal people. And so I thought that was pretty awesome. And, and I think uh, one thing that you brought up um, earlier is that in the Seneca Falls convention, men are painted as very tyrannical and abusive. And so, and she doesn't take that approach with them. I think she takes a much more balanced approach with what people are actually like. Yeah, I agree. I, I really resonated with that approach. Definitely. And it, it's just, useful. And I think strategically, it makes sense too, to get men enlisted in your cause. And if you come at them with fist swinging and accusing them of being horrible, horrible people who are ruining your life intentionally, I I don't want to listen to someone who's talking to me like that. So um, it's also smart, but you get the sense that it's in, that it's um, genuine also that she just she doesn't hate men. She likes men and she thinks they're good people. So that's a great quote to bring up. Okay. Um, Shaw goes on to talk about another argument that the anti-suffragists were making at the time. She says, and talking about time, you would think it took about a week to vote. A dear good friend of mine in Omaha said, now Miss Shaw, and she held up her child in her arms, is not this my job? I said, it certainly is. And she said, how can I go to the polls and vote and neglect my baby? I said, has your husband a job? And she said, why, you know he has. I did know it. He was a banker and a very busy one. I said, yet your husband said he was going to leave work and go down to the polls and vote. And she said, oh, yes, he is so very interested in the election. Then I said, what an advantage you have over your husband. He has to leave his job and you can take your job with you, and you do not need to neglect your job. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, she continues. I am going to read just a little bit more because it's just so on point. She says, quote, Is it not strange that the only time a woman might neglect her baby is on election day? And then the dear old aunties hold, their ha- hold up their hands and say, You've neglected your baby. A woman can belong to a whist club. And I'm just going to interject. Whist was a game. Think of it like we now think of bunco nights or something like that. Um, They would play whist. Um, And then resuming the quote, and go once a week and play whist. She cannot take her baby to the whist club. She can go to the theater, to church, or a picnic, and no one is worrying about the baby. But to vote, and everyone cries out about the neglect. You would think on election day that a woman grabbed up her baby and started out and just dropped it somewhere and paid no attention to it. (laughs) (laughs) It used to be asked when we had the question box, who will take care of the babies? I did not know what person could be got to take care of all the babies, so I thought I would go out west and find out. I went to Denver and found that they took care of their babies just the same on election day as they did on every other day. They took their baby along with them. 
When they went to put a letter in the box, they took their baby along. And when they went to put their ballot in the box, they took their baby along. If the mother had to stand in line and the baby got restless, she would joggle the go-kart. And when she went in to vote, a neighbor would joggle the go-kart. And if there was no neighbor, then there was the candidate. And he would joggle the cart. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love how she was like... Hmm, I really wasn't sure what people did on election day. So I went to Denver and you can just hear the sarcasm <laughs> dripping from her voice. It's fantastic. <laughs> totally. Oh, she's so funny. Um, I wanted to ask you, Amy, when we, when I read that part, I thought of um, people even now, and I know women are sometimes we, we, women can be hard on each other. I guess I'll say that. And I know that there, that sometimes people will say like, they'll use the same argument again. Like, um, I'm so busy. P- women will be really, really busy with, you know, church responsibilities and, um, school responsibilities and volunteer responsibilities. And somehow they find, you know, places for their children to go when they're doing those things. But then if a woman chooses to have a career outside the home, then the, I, I hear the same thing, kind of the like, oh, well, what are you going to do with your kids while you go to work? And that that's what I thought of is that same thing was like, what are you going to do with your babies while you vote? But meanwhile, these women are going to whist or the theater, like they do figure out what to do with their kids if they're motivated to. Totally. But there's, there's stigma still, I feel like in some in some communities, there's stigma against women being involved in the secular world. And I just, I admire you because you have had like just this really rich um, and varied and interesting and fulfilling career. And you're also an amazing mother of five kids. So do you ever feel that judgment or like, how have you dealt with that? You know, it's a really good question because um, as you know, um, I am an active member of the Mormon church. And so it, it is something, there's definitely a preference within the church for women to stay home and, and raise children and not go into the workforce. And that is changing as it becomes more and more of a necessity. But uh, especially with men and very well-meaning and good-hearted men that I worked with who were also members of the same faith, they could figure out why I was working. Like, and, and it was so innocent most of the time, right? It was, it was like, how are you actually having kids and taking care of your kids and not neglecting your duties and working at the same time? And they didn't like usually say it quite that blatantly, but that's what they were asking. And so I told them a story that, that was a true story that always satisfied them. And that was, well, my husband um, had to go to part-time in, during the financial crisis in 2007, and I needed to um, be able to pick up some slack. And all of a sudden, like that story would fully satisfied them. They were like, oh, she's doing it for her family, and she's doing it for her husband. And it is true, but it was also a story that was um, it, it, it fit in their narrative. And so I just made kind of a point to say, you know, that this is my story. And because it was authentic and it felt good, you know, to me, uh, it, it was it was fine. But I also found it very interesting that I had to tell the story in order for them to say in their minds, oh, OK, that's fine. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was kind of a, um, it was a good lesson to me. And it's also something that, you know, it's, it's a valid concern. People care about their children and you want to make sure that your children are, that your children are being raised with, um, you know, by, by good parents that care and love about their children, love their children. And so there was a, there has been a narrative going around, um, that if, if moms are working, then they're not going to do as good of a job parenting. And so that's the challenge and the opportunity for me to be able to um, be a dedicated mom and then also um, be a dedicated coworker. And it's not just in the Mormon community. I actually had somebody tell me in grad school, um, uh, this person was not a religious person, but she said, you know, one thing that I've noticed about you is that most of the time people care about their families way more, or they care about their career way more. And you put a lot of emphasis on both. And so I took that as a compliment because I think that um, it is something that is manageable and it is something that you can um, give a lot of emphasis to in both ways. And I think that um, Shaw here is is recognizing that that you can you can vote and you can take care of your kids. They're not mutually exclusive. So right. I don't know if that was a good answer or not, yeah. but that's just been my experience. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, I want it. Just makes me wonder. I, it just highlights still the um, the the biases again and and again because this this project gives us historical context of you know, especially when Anna Howard Shaw was speaking, that it was still, you know, right on the heels of the laws of coverture and that the ideology of the separate spheres was very much um, at play. But I just do think it, it sounds to me like separate spheres ideology is still impacting our culture today. And like you said, not just within the Mormon church, although more in conservative religious environments than outside, I think. But it just seems to be a little bit of a holdover t- for that, that you know, again, that women can can spend time as long as it's volunteer or as long as it's like at the church or with a friend or something, but not working. And I just want to ask that man, those men who asked you, like, I just want to ask him, like, I don't know, do you have kids? How do you manage your work-life mm-hmm. balance? Like, and why, why are you asking me that? Yeah. Well, when I've asked them before, they've said, well, I, my wife does it. (laughs) My wife does a much better job than I do. And so I think that, um, just one, one thing that was a really interesting paradigm shift for us is that, you know, Jeff and I, my husband, Jeff and I both, um, really, of course, love our children, like, like all parents do and want to make sure that they're taken care of really well. And so, um, we were both raised in that very traditional environment where women should stay home with the kids and men should go out and work. And so um, for a little while, for probably a couple of years, we we both felt, and this is from a, a faith perspective, that it was God's plan for us for for both of us to work and for both of us to take care of the kids. And so it was a little bit mind-blowing because what we felt in our hearts um from, you know, from our faith was a little bit different from the culture that we grew up in. And so having that paradigm shift within our own uh, religion and culture was a good growing experience for us and actually really brought us together even more so as a couple. 
I love that. I, th- I th- it takes a lot of courage to to do what you know is right for you, even if it's different from what the community might think and from the way that you might have been raised. And I, I admire you for it. And honestly, I was inspired by watching you do everything that you were doing because, I mean, I guess you kind of alluded to this when you said just being that person who does love your kids and does manage to, you know, um, devote time and energy and devotion to your work and your family, every person who sees you do that then has a paradigm shift in their own mind. Like, whoa, a woman can do that, right? And that's how culture changes. Yeah. And I think the best way that we can do it, and you do it yourself, Amy, and I think that the best outcome of this is for our daughters to not to not grow up in with those limitations. And it's been really great for for us to see our daughters say, what do I want to do? And they some some of them say, I want to stay home and raise kids. And we say, that's awesome. And some of them say, I want to be a pharmacist. And we say, that's awesome. And my youngest says, I don't like boys, so I want to be a single mom. And we just laugh. <laughs> and we say, I don't know. Go, go for it. You probably could, Haley. <laughs> I know Haley, and I know she can do anything. <laughs> and so... Anyway, they are, um, they're all pretty fantastic, but you know, like your, your daughters are so empowered and I love the fact that we are helping just like Shaw did for her future generation. A lot of the, a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the, um, the passion that we pursue will benefit the lives of the next generation. And so that's my hope is that, that our daughters will grow up, uh, feeling, totally empowered and free to, um, to build the lives in the ways that, that they feel right about. That's my hope too. Um, thanks, Aim. Okay. We're going to wrap up. There's just one more quote that I want to read. There's, there's a long passage that we're going to skip, but, um, just, I'm going to mention it to listeners. There's a really heartrending, beautiful passage um, where she talks about the horrors and the tragedies of World War I. This speech was, again, it was given in 1915, so they were a year into World War I. And I really wish we had time to read it because it's so moving as she talks about mother's grief over the sons that were dying in war. And she makes a powerful argument for women using their vote and being involved in government in order to use love and diplomacy um, in order to avoid future wars. Shaw says, quote, we women do not want the ballot in order that we may fight, but we do want the ballot in order that we may help men to keep from fighting whether it is in the home or in the state. Just as the home is not without the man, so the state is not without the woman. And you can no more build up homes without men than you can build up the state without women. We are needed everywhere where human problems are to be solved. Men and women must go through this world together from the cradle to the grave. It is God's way and the fundamental and the fundamental principle of a Republican form of government. And end quote. And of course, by Republican, she means like a republic as in a democracy, right. um, not a political party. But I thought that was just a, a powerful way 
of of wrapping up the speech. Um, do you have one thing that you would like to share, Amy, that was like a, t- a main takeaway from you that you'll remember from the speech? Well, I think that that last quote really sums it up for me. Um, I love the fact that she she truly expresses her belief in equality, not by lifting women up above men, but pairing them together and showing where they where men and women both belong. They both belong in the state and they both belong at home. And I, I think the way that she um, did that was was really beautiful. And that is how I also want to um, position myself and um, feminism and um, kind of my political leanings is, is equally, you, you hear equally yoked, but in a very true way. What about you? What what's something that you remember that you'll take away from this? Um, I think for me, the the arguments against women voting were really interesting to me. Um, again, kind of realizing how long it took to pass the Nineteenth Amendment, um, and and understanding why and what people's resistance was, and like you pointed out so well, what were what were they scared of? What were their fears? Um, and and that helped me to understand that historical moment better. Um, but I was also just kind of blown away by how current the issues felt, even though women have had the right to vote for 100 years now. Um, again, like I said before, I guess that, that some of those arguments just still, still felt relevant to me. They're still being used to keep women from participating fully in society. Um, people, like we said, people still say like, oh, well, that might cause, like you pointed out, um, that couple that you know, that it, it will cause contention, you know, it might cause contention in my family if I go back to school. And that pressure is, you know, unequally put on the woman to keep the peace and make sure that the boat doesn't get rocked. And so she takes one for the team, always. It's just assumed that the woman will, or, you know, who will take care of the children? In my view, both parents should be asked that question, who will take care of the children? It's a it's a legitimate question, like like you said, but the, the fact that it um, those arguments are still used to keep women from having equitable relationships, maybe with men in their marriages, and from it keeps women from achieving their own human potential to keep them from from participating out in the world how they choose the way that men do. So um, yeah, I agree with Anna Howard Shaw. Human beings are really smart. We can come up with new, better ways of doing things so that everybody can participate in a system that's more just and where one group of adults doesn't make restrictive rules for another group of adults. And I just really think that we can rise to the occasion. Um, I think we're capable. So I love that. that was- very well said and very well summed up. Well, Amy, thank you. Thank you again for this discussion. I learned oh, so much. So fun. So did I. And what a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to reconnect with you and, and talk about things that really matter. Me too. So grateful. Thank you so much for being here. For our next episode, we will be discussing two speeches by Margaret Sanger. The Morality of Birth Control, given in 1918, and The Case for Birth Control, given in 1934. 
These are landmark works regarding women's reproduction. And in preparation, I recommend to listeners that you look up the speeches online. They're online. You can read them for free. And also, it's it would be really great preparation to watch some episodes of the BBC series Call the Midwife. Just almost pick any season, any episode. They're so inspiring, and it, it um, deals with women's reproduction and is just a really great way to set up um, next our next episode's discussion. Um, Sanger's speeches are really a fascinating slice of history, but it's also an incredibly important topic that impacts everyday life for all of us, men and women, all humans. So look up the morality of birth control and the case for birth control, and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm-hmm.